This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to another episode of the Great War Channel podcast. And today we are talking about an individual for a change again. We had a few biography episodes a few months back and now here we are again. Who are we talking to and who are we talking about today? Yes, we have another Forrest Gump style uh, personality from the war years, but not only the war years. We're talking to uh, Joe McAleer, who's the author of a book called Escape Artist, which is a biography of a man, a British man by the name of Harry Perry Robinson, who did all sorts of wild and interesting things in over the course of his long career as a journalist and a writer, including discovering famous mummies and all this kind of stuff or reporting on the discovery. But for our purposes, what we focused on today was his years as a war correspondent um, throughout the entire war. And he was an old man pretty much uh, by the time the war broke out, but nonetheless went to all sorts of interesting places, was in the, in the sort of heart of the fighting on the Western Front reporting about it. And that is what we asked Joe about. I think the subtitle of the book uh, is that uh, is the nine lives uh, of him. And I think it's definitely one of these people from the early 20th, late 19th century that from just reading like the, you know, the bullet point list uh, from his biography, he seems he lived, he lived more than nine people do in their entire lives. Yes, and his life is sort of, you know, bound up. It's like one of those little mini versions of the British Empire type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, we hope you enjoy the interview. And through the magic of editing, you will hear it right now. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy today to welcome uh, our next podcast guest, who has written a fascinating uh, biography on a man who was a war correspondent during the Great War. We have with us today independent historian and author and, get this folks, former overseer of a Scottish castle, Joseph McAleer is joining us from the US. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. Nice to be with you. All right, so we're here to talk about your most recent book, which is called Escape Artist. And it's about the life and times of um, a war correspondent by the name of Perry Robinson. And uh, why don't we start off with uh, the big picture, since I didn't know about him before learning about your book and checking it out. So how did you get interested in the life of Harry Perry Robinson? And what kind of drew you to his story? Well, Jesse, I always say that one book sort of leads to the next book. 
And in the case of this biography of Harry Perry Robinson, I had been working on a book about Jack London, the American author called The Wild White Fang. And um, Jack London at the turn of the century, uh, 1902, um, was looking for an overseas publisher because back then, if you were an American writer and you wanted to become really well-known around the world, you needed to find a publisher in London. And um, Jack London found a small independent publisher, uh, which was run by a man called Harry Perry Robinson. And in his correspondence with Jack London, he kept dropping hints about uh, a former life he had in America, some interesting things that he had done. And I thought, you know, this there must be more to this guy who I had never heard of. And when I learned that he had worked as a journalist most of his life, um, journalists, as you well know, are sort of notorious pack rats. We keep everything. And I thought if I could track down um, a descendant of this man who died in 1930, um, they might well have um, material on him. And lo and behold, I did. And it was like an Aladdin's cave diaries, clippings, photographs, um, manuscripts. Um, and that's just kind of manna to a historian, and particularly to a biographer. Yeah, this is like the holy grail of what you want to find when you're interested in, in particular, in a, in a biography. Um, so, let's start with the title, uh, which is Escape Artist. Why did you end up picking that particular title for the, for the book? Well, it has to do really with the subtitle, too. So it's Escape Artist, The Nine Lives of Harry Perry Robinson. And as I researched this man I never heard of, what struck me was not only how many historical events he had had a hand in and how unknown he was. He was always kind of on the fringe of history, sort of in history's shadow. Uh, but also his capacity for reinvention, which I kind of categorized into nine lives. Um, he started in one area, uh, moved into the next, moved into the next. Um, this progression of um, careers, if you like, of life experiences, and with them, you know, this tremendous kind of role he played in historical events. Um, led me to show that he was kind of an escape artist. He kind of would go from one experience to kind of escape into the next, progressing through his life. Uh, started out as a journalist, became a prospector for gold in the American West, wound up um, running a railroad publication, uh, married the daughter of the richest man in town who as a wedding gift, gave his future son-in-law the equivalent of $5 million, not too shabby. Um, he befriended a future American president, became a book publisher, uh, became a war correspondent, which we'll talk about today. And most astonishingly, at the end of his life, just when he had racked up you know, all these tremendous accomplishments, he had received a knighthood from the king, um, he has the undisputed scoop of the century in being the man who reports on the opening of King Tut's tomb in Egypt in 1923. 
So it just fascinated me how, you know, almost like a Forrest Gump or a Zelig uh, with little dashes sort of Indiana Jones, the progression of this man um, from his beginnings as a um, child in India. Uh, his father was an Indian Army chaplain. Um, right through time in America, became an American citizen, then back to the UK to become this kind of eminent um, journalist and statesman. Uh, it's just the kind of grand life um, lived and that no one had ever heard of. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, his his sort of Forrest Gumpy uh, qualities and life story remind me a little bit of another uh, podcast guest that we had recently, Vivian Hux Reed, who uh, wrote a biography, or actually, I should say, edited the writings of a of a U.S. diplomat who'd spent a lot of time in Poland and then was in Belgium. So it's interesting how there are these different characters who end up sort of being just on the edge of all these of all these key points in history. Um, my next question was a little bit about his his life overview, but you've you've given us some insight into some of the highlights in um, in the answer that you just gave. So. What about uh, him as a person? Like, what kind of personality, what kind of character uh, has he got? Um, he was a unabashed patriot, uh, queen, country, empire, uh, right from the beginning. Um, conservative, but also uh, a kind of true liberal at heart. Um, he was, for example, opposed to trade unions. Uh, at the time, I think, fearful of what was happening um, back in Europe in terms of violence. Um, but while being opposed to trade unions, he, he wanted very much to find a kind of via media between the employer and the employees. So, you know, he always had the kind of best interest of both sides um, at heart. Um, as a patriot, he was very anti-German. He watched the, as he called the German menace, um, develop towards the end of the century, which certainly um, led him to um, want to cover the First World War when it erupted. Um, he was one of the first people to um, really promote what we now know as the kind of special relationship between the UK and the US. Um, he believed very much like his good friend, Rudyard Kipling, um, in the kind of um, um, Anglo-Saxon um, superiority, if you like, um, felt that you know only by the two um, um, you know former um, um, colonists uh, and their and um, their mother country coming together could you find the best way forward for um, for world peace. Um, he obviously in his lifetime was disappointed by that. Um, pleased at the late entry of the U.S. into um, the First World War, disappointed about the League of Nations, um, concerned about um, isolationism in the U.S. after the war. Uh, as I mentioned, he died in 1930. I think he would have been very disappointed um, by um, you know, developments of appeasements and such towards the um, Second World War. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair statement for quite a lot of people as well. Um, but in particular, perhaps for him, given his role and his um, connection to both countries. Let's focus in a little bit now on his time as a war correspondent uh, during the First World War. 
Um, give us the the sort of whistle stop tour. Where where did he end up? What fronts was he covering? What sort of battles did he end up writing about, and that sort of thing? He was the oldest um, correspondent to cover the entire war. Um, I mean, think about it. He was fifty five years old and not in good health when the war started. But there was no way he was not going to you know, go over there and, and, and cover, cover the action. Um, he was in Belgium and the Netherlands in 1914, uh, Serbia in 1915. Uh, he was at the Western Front um, from 1916 to the end of the war with a very brief time in Switzerland, of all places. And um, he was in Germany when the, um, in Cologne, on the bridge, um, just after the, um, the surrender. So he, he was really there in the thick of everything. Um, he was well known in the very beginning for covering the um, fall of Antwerp, uh, was on the kind of last boat um, to float down the river as the, um, the Germans invaded. Um, he uh, famously covered the Battle of the Somme, which he then um, um, published in book form as did a lot of correspondence. Kind of interesting. Um, today, we see a lot of kind of instant books that appear on um, current events, but it was actually quite common back then, too, as um, um, publishers wanted to take advantage of, obviously, um, public interest in the war. So early in 1917, he published a point where he basically took his um, articles for uh, the London Times and tweaked them a bit. And, and published published them, and it was it was well received. Um, he um, um, he was at the liberation of Lille. Um, he really he was there at the, the, the some of the most horrific um, battles. Um, as a war correspondent, he was um, had a press attaché who would take him right up to the front, right into the trenches. And um, he was a man who wanted to be as close to the action um, as possible. I mean, in spite of his um, relative um, ill health, um, nothing would, would stop him from, from doing his, his duty. And as a result, as the oldest of the correspondents, he became kind of like a father figure um, to, um, to the rest of them who were all kind of billeted in a in a chateau not, not far from the Western Front. And that raises uh, another question. This is something that uh, he actually discusses through the excerpts that you share in the, in the book, is this idea of you know, how, how to encapsulate the reality of a war correspondent. Is it daring do and dash you know, right up on the front lines? Or is it sitting back in a chateau where the general staff is kind of feeding you, you know, what the equivalent of sound bites uh, of World War One that are packaged uh, and censored. So what was his reality actually like? Did he see a lot of combat? Um, did he sort of regurgitate whatever the official line was that he was given or was it kind of somewhere in between? I, I remember one story Uh, from Antwerp, where apparently his vehicle was actually, you know, moving uh, wounded soldiers around. So that was that was pretty much in the thick of things. 
Yeah, he was he was very much in the thick of things. Um, there were a lot of a lot of criticism at the time of war correspondence. They felt that because they were billeted together in a chateau, that you know they were coddled, they were you know kept from the action, they were censored and all that stuff. And Harry Perry Robinson um, really went out of his way to say, "Look, you know we are present at every battle. Um, we come together. We pool our." notes, you know, we, we try, um, we're mindful of not doing anything to hurt the war effort, but at the same time, you know, we have responsibility to report the truth. Uh, what I found particularly fascinating, which you don't often think of when you're studying um, the First World War, is that there was a lot of downtime. You know, you think of the Battle of the Somme and you think it's one continuous 24-7, day after day after day. Whereas, you know, they would have days, maybe a week, in between battles where correspondents like um, Harry Perry Robinson are back at the chateau. He had a particular interest in nature and the environment. So he was fishing, he was catching butterflies. Also, there were a lot of visitors. I mean, a constant stream of people coming from London, you know, H.G. Wells drops and John Maysfield drops and, you know, just kind of coming, coming to visit, which you don't normally think of people coming to, you know, the close, you know, close to, close to battle. Um, so, yes, he, um, he, he makes a point, particularly in his coverage of major battles of describing the carnage, the, the bombing, the, um, the physical toll um, he's there with his, uh, with his, at his attache, um, given complete, you know, access, not really restricted from, um, his movements really not restricted, uh, restricted at all. So, um, yes, on, on the, the daring do of the war correspondent is very much, um, present at this time. Um, yeah. And I think the impact of that, I think there's this, this, um, brief anecdote in the book as well, where he's asked, I think it was by his son, you know, well, well, and he just, uh, just kind of says, I can't talk about it. And apparently didn't uh, too much, which is very commonly the case with uh, veterans as well. Um, how about him as a reporter? What, what is his style like? What aspects particularly interested him? I, I was surprised when I read how interested he was in nature, for example, and how he wove that in to his reporting. He did, which really makes him unique amongst his um, correspondent peers. Um, he always had an interest in the environment. Um, his, one of his brothers um, was a great British kind of nat um, natural um, world man, started a nat uh, natural science organization. Um, and I think this was also a way to kind of um, help his sanity amongst so much horror that he would look around and he would write articles. Um, you know, he was under pressure from the London Times, who he was reporting for, to produce copy. And as I mentioned, when um, there are gaps between battles, he would look around for things to write about and he 
built upon his interest in the natural world. And these articles became very popular for almost the kind of respite and hope that it gave to readers. He would say, you know, the first cuckoo appeared, you know, in, in, in the middle of the battlefield, or he would say how, you know, the, the ravages of war on um, villages and such in the craters, he would see the wildflowers start to reappear. And to him, it was, you know, spring is coming and nature is our, is our great, our great hope. Um, he told a marvelous story about um, a famous stork um, in Amiens. There was a hotel in Amiens, France, where um, um, the Allied troops would, you know, congregate and um, um, fraternize. And in the garden of the hotel was a, a stork and a gull. And this stork, whenever the German aircraft would appear overhead, would be very animated and would start honking and running back and forth, back and forth. And it became almost their kind of warning symbol. And there was great affection for this bird. Well, when Amiens was bombed, they decided to... Um, relocate the stork and the gull to their chateau for safety. And um, they lived for a while and then they, the, the gull disappeared, the stork died, and they actually kind of took the stork away with sort of full military honors, um, such affection for him. And he was stuffed and put on display in the brand new Imperial War Museum that was being put together in, in London. And Harry Perry Robinson writes, you know, as if he was the stork, you know, you people gazing at me, you know, in my case, you know, did I meet you, you know, one day in, in Amiens? Um, no one knows, by the way, what happened to that stork. The Imperial War Museum doesn't have any record. It moved several times after its founding in 1917. Um, but there were stories like that. Um, Harry Perry Robinson um, could write very graphically and vividly about battles. He had great empathy for soldiers, um, liked to emphasize in particular the um, international quality of the Allied troops. Um, he was very, as I say, um, very much pro-empire, but he would go out of his way to mention the Australians, to mention the Indians, to mention the New Zealanders and so forth. But in addition to um, what you would think of as very um, straightforward war reporting, he had these tremendous stories just giving hope about flowers and birds and um, nature, which, which really makes him stand out. Yeah, that's that's one thing that struck me when I was uh, reading about him. I won't take it personally. You didn't mention the Canadians, by the way, in your list of imperial troops, given that that I am a Canadian by birth. But that's okay. We'll we'll forgive you for today. <laughs> no, tremendous, tremendous valor on the part of the Canadian troops, of course. Oh, I thank you. Now, now you're making up for it. Um, so. In terms of wartime censorship, given that he has this kind of, you know, imperialist or patriotic or somewhere on that spectrum approach, um, but he also wants to, in his own words, you know, tell the truth. What's his relationship with censorship? censorship? Uh, what does he think about it? And how does he go about his work in relation to it? He talked about he had three they were given three broad principles regarding censorship. He said, we must say nothing, 
which will give information or encouragement to the enemy. Well, that's obvious. Two, we must say nothing that will unduly depress our men. Okay. And three, we must not criticize the conduct of our military operations. Now, he said that opponents, um, he said, hardly agree on this. But on the other hand, they also knew they had a responsibility to report the truth. So when a battle didn't go um, the Allied troops way, um, they reported that perhaps they didn't dwell on it as much as they uh, might do today. Um, but, but nonetheless, um, um, they reported, um, you know, these were, um, these were men who were serious journalists, yes, but they were also, you know, tremendous patriots. Um, did Harry Perry Robinson air perhaps on the side of um, um, painting a rosier picture at times? Probably. Um, but, you know, were there other reporters who you could then, you know, um, compare him to? Um, there, were, there were an awful lot of them. But um, he became a great, um, uh, great friend of um, Lord Haig. And, um, um, you know, from reading his, um, his descriptions, it's, it, it's hard to say that he was really holding much back. I mean, a lot of the um, uh, quite graphic descriptions of carnage on both sides, um, but at the same time, you know, wanting to give, um, you know, hope to readers back home. Yeah, it's a tough uh, line to walk, especially when, I suppose, you know, his personal feelings were so strong in one direction, then um, that that definitely would have an influence. Um, uh, we want to add in a, a viewer question at this uh, stage, and it's from a supporter of ours by the name of Darko. And his question is about the difference between what someone writes, what a war correspondent writes during the war, and what they might then write or think about some similar topics or events after the war. Is there any evidence that you came across in the documents that you have related to Harry Perry Robinson that he changed any of his opinions or that he you know, felt like he should have done something differently uh, back in the war years? I honestly can't say that I have come across that. Um, he... Um He certainly expanded on things he wrote about during the war, after the war. Um, for example, he was the first um, correspondent to actually get to fly up in an airplane over the Western Front. And he, um, he was giddy as a schoolboy. <laughs> you know, he, they would say that he tells how they warned him before, and you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick, you're going to get sick. He didn't get sick. And, you know, they were doing practically loop-de-loops and such. And um, he was thrilled about that. He was thrilled about technology, particularly the, um, the use of um, tanks for the first time, which he likened to sort of gigantic dinosaurs um, of old. Um, he, um, after the war, he was very involved in the War Graves Commission as... Um, Um, the, um, the British sought to memorialize um, in different parts of the world um, the, um, the, the fallen dead. And he wrote, um, 
famous account of the unknown soldier arriving in London, making his way to Westminster Abbey, where he was interred. interred. Um, you see there a, a more, more depth, perhaps, to um, his writing about the, um, the symbolism, the profound loss to the nation of so many um, young men in, in their prime. Um, so yes, probably a, a much more reflection on, on his part, but in terms of him, um, perhaps reassessing, um, why, you know, why the war happened and what became of it and such. No, he, um, he remained a kind of fierce, um, fierce patriot. Mm-hmm. I want to, uh, throw in a bonus question, let's say, for Darko, because I know he's interested in the Balkan front uh, from some previous questions that he's uh, submitted. And I learned just recently, right, that that Perry Robinson has also uh, spent some time in Serbia. What's one of the highlights maybe from his time in Serbia? He left before, uh, just for our viewers, for our listeners, he, he left Serbia before the sort of final defeat of Serbia in the fall of 1915. So he kind of got out of there before it, it really went bad. He did. Um, he was sent to Serbia. He had a kind of very horrible experience in the fall of Antwerp. And then, um, Afterwards, covering the sort of refugee flight um, from from Belgium, um, and I think they were a bit concerned back at the head office of the Times and felt he needed a break. So he was sent to Serbia, where he said, you know, nothing was happening. There was kind of a standoff there, and um, he again was searching for things to write about. In addition to you know his nature articles, um, he had some kind of comic. Um, things about, um, you know, all of the, uh, you know, all of the prisoners just kind of, you know, sitting around growing fat and um, he had great um, appreciation for the, the, the young British um, doctors and nurses who were there who, you know, a year ago were, um, you know, at, at university and here they are doing such, such heroic work. Um, he talks about, um, um antics on the Danube, kind of trying to kind of um, pick fights, you know, across the river. But um, he, he looked on his time in Serbia as just kind of buying time. He was anxious to sort of get back um, to the action. But it was a restorative time for him where um, he really did kind of re- recharge his batteries. He complained a lot about the food and the bugs and the... <clears throat> But again, he wrote about the people, how much the people had suffered, and yet, um, you know, the resilience, the um, the drive to um, to survive and to, to see this through, and um, you know, wrote very, very, very hopeful pieces. Serbia in World War One is not usually considered a wellspring of hope, but hey, you never know. There are all sorts of different experiences that are possible, and finally. Last question, and this one is about uh, you and your experience writing the book. It's notoriously difficult 
um, when using biography as the approach to a historical topic to try to maintain some degree of objectivity, because of course you're drawn into this person's life and you naturally tend to often uh, empathize uh, with them. How did you feel about that process? Did you feel yourself kind of having to pull back and resist from, you know, uh, singing Rule Britannia at some point in your in your writing process? And it's, a, it's an excellent question because you um, um, you get very close to your to your subject. You know, you learn what he likes for breakfast, right down to you know, not Serbian food. No, not exactly not. Um, I think you you do have to pull back and kind of look at it um, from from a distance. Um, I certainly admired the, the life and work of Harry Perry Robinson. Um, as a person, he, um, um, his personal life was, was a mess. And there was an interesting juxtaposition from, you know, his public life where he was very much, you know, interested in projecting the right image, um, Back to his personal life, where he had a, he had a young son back at home during the war, and he's trying very hard to be a, a a father from a long from long distance. And he would write long letters where he's just kind of pounding this kid for um, you know not doing his homework and not 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 getting a good grade on his spelling test and stuff. And you want to say, but you know, give give this kid a little bit of little bit of bit of hope. Um, when you, when you get inside a person's life like that, you, um, um, you do discover that, um, you have to keep a distance. You have to appreciate both his public life and, and private life. Um, there are things you like, there's things that repel, you tell everything, um, you leave a lot to the reader to decide. Um, at times, you know, you wish you had more, um, more background, more material. Um, he famously kept a diary um, every every day of his life from 1905 to the day he died. And yet the wartime diaries were missing, which is probably very, very telling. I mean, it was such a, uh, a profound, it's such a profound physical and psychological um, impact on him. Um, I certainly came away admiring him as a survivor as a, um, uh, a man who, you know, when things would be at their worst, would, you know, pull up his bootstraps and kind of move on to the next challenge, very much kind of uh, get up and go, and um, had just a, a, a remarkable life. It was a real privilege to um, be able to uh, write, research and write this book, and you know, hopefully bring his story um, to the world. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a fascinating story. I really enjoyed the sections that I dipped into in more detail about the, the war uh, the war years. So for our listeners out there, uh, and hopefully we've sort of piqued their curiosity in this, in this guy's story, where's the best place where they can get their hands on the book? <clears throat> well, it's available at, at any of your book outlets, um, in particular Amazon. Um, we have just released the audio book of Escape Artist, um, read by an Englishman named Matthew Lloyd Davies. And I must say, he does a marvelous job. Um, 
mimicking um, Harry Perry Robinson's voice whenever you know he is um, speaking in the book or or, or his writings. So um, whether you're into print, which I hope everybody still is, um, or into in, into listening, um, I think um, Amazon is probably your 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 best case. All right, um, listen. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing a story that was totally new to me before we started prepping uh, for speaking with you. Uh, I really appreciate it and it was really interesting. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed talking with you.